that. So there you go. All right. Joshua chapter 6 is where we're going to start this morning. Well, actually, I'm going to um, have you in Hebrews 4 as well. So if you want to mark Joshua 6 and Hebrews chapter 4, that's where we'll get started. I, I remember when I, my kids were really little that they would offer to help me mow the lawn. And I, you know, if uh, you were a dad or a mom in charge of mowing the lawn, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You're, you're on the top bar and your kid comes along and gets on that bottom bar and you know, leans hard into the process. And I remember um, the, both of my kids, when, when the, uh, they had done whatever their portion of the lawn was, which was usually like you know, three minutes or whatever, they'd run inside and, Mom, Mom, I mowed the lawn, right? Or maybe they'd have this flash of humility and say, We mowed the lawn, Dad and I mowed the lawn. But the fact was, I mowed the lawn, right? I, I was the one who actually was the source of power and strength. I mowed the lawn. And maybe you're, you're tracking with me on the point of my analogy here. God is doing this great work in the world, and he really doesn't need our help to bring honor and glory to his reputation throughout the world. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, our efforts probably slow things down a little bit at times. But he loves our participation. He made us to participate in spreading his honor and glory throughout the world. But it's his strength and his power. And so as we saw last week, uh, Joshua had this incredible calling on his life. It was an overwhelming calling that he was to lead God's people to capture God's land for God's honor and God's glory. And he, he accepted that. It's an overwhelming calling. It's an overwhelming task. But now the people are right at the edge of the promised land. And together they have to, to lean into this calling that, that God has to accomplish for them. Now, to set the, uh, the kind of the historical and theological background for this, I do want to look first at the book of Hebrews. And um, I want to make the observation that what we're going to look at this morning is there's some real historical events, but they have a spiritual point. And that is that God is doing his work in the world. He calls us to participate. And one of the most important questions before us, in a sense, is uh, how do we most effectively cooperate with what God wants to do? Not not get in his way, but get, get with him in the way that he is conquering and establishing his honor and glory throughout the world. So, Hebrews chapter 4 kind of lays a theological and historical background for us. Chapter 4 and verse 4. The writer says, For God has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So, uh, I'm guessing that the author actually knew where this was. You know where this is, that he's quoting from, right? This is Genesis. But he says, somewhere God has said this. The Lord rested on the seventh day, right? He went through six days of creation, and then he rested. And God didn't rest because he was exhausted or tired. God rested to show a pattern for us. So this historical event of creation was establishing a pattern for us that when all of the effort and the labor has been done, that we stop and we celebrate the reward. So he goes on. Verse 5. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now where does that passage come from? Well, that's later, that's in the book of Exodus where the uh, generation that was rescued out of uh, Egypt came right to the edge of the promised land, sent in their spies, and then they backed off and they said, we can't do it, the giants are too big. They, again, as we mentioned last week, they looked at the, the, the task in front of them and how enormous it was and overwhelming, and they didn't recognize that their God was bigger than this and adequate, and so God said, all right, then you're not going to go in. And so they didn't enter into the reward 
for faithful obedience and trust in the power of God. So rest in the promised land is not a picture of salvation. Rest in the promised land is a picture of the reward of obedience. So that generation that wandered in the wilderness, it's not that uh, they didn't have eternal life, it's that they disobeyed God's calling on their life, and as a result, they didn't get to enjoy this reward of obedience. So rest is the reward of obedience. Now notice the author goes on, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of their disobedience, right? That's the wilderness wandering generation. God again fixes a certain day today. Saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, generations later, David would say, you know, there's still a rest for us. Because if you read the book of Joshua, you'll notice they went in, they conquered the promised land, but not all of it. Not all the enemies were removed. In other words, the kingdom has not been established on earth. And so today, you have an opportunity to let God's Holy Spirit empower you fulfill the callings before you, and then enjoy the reward of that obedience. So today, will you listen? Today, will you not harden your heart and let God accomplish his work through you? And think deeply about this question, how do I cooperate with what God is already doing in the world and in and through my life? I love this quote from Robert Moffat, missionary. He once said, we have all of eternity to celebrate our victories, but just one short hour in which to win them. And right now, people, we're in the hour. Right. Some of you may have felt it even more acutely than others that we're in the middle of spiritual warfare. And you may even come in this morning and feel really battered by issues that are spiritual or issues that are physical or issues that are emotional or relational. And you recognize that we have this adversary who is pounding on us and doesn't want us to live in dependence and obedience and honor and glorify Jesus Christ in absolutely every moment of our day. So what I want to look at this morning is three principles of uh, spiritual conquest. Three things that spiritual conquest requires. The first is this. Complete and utter reliance on the power of God. The second, unceasing respect for God's glory and his sovereignty. Third, vigorous repentance when we do go astray. So, turn back to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at these three principles. Joshua chapter 6 And verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Joshua 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. So the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of of war, circling the city once. You shall do this for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city, it will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man, straight ahead. So, who's going to accomplish this victory? God's going to do it, right? God is going to accomplish this victory. Now, a little detail that's often overlooked in this story, you'll notice that the trumpets that are blown are actually ram's horns. A little detail that's important. Because when the people were called to war, silver trumpets were blown. But when the people were called to worship, the ram's horns were blown. This is a spiritual exercise. 
God's saying to the priests, blow the ram's horns. Priests, you get out in front because fundamentally this is a spiritual exercise. It, at some point in time, the Israelites are going to have to take up their swords and their spears and they'll have to physically get into this battle. But the, the nature of this battle, the essence of this battle, is that it's a spiritual battle. So, as uh, the psalmist said, for by their own sword they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence because you favored them. The psalmist says, look, we have to acknowledge that ultimately this was the power of God and later on, the author to Hebrews would say this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What caused the walls to fall was a spiritual exercise. And church, what I want to remind us of this morning is the simple fact that all of life is spiritual. God uses the lessons in the physical world to teach us spiritual realities. So, the health issue that you may be struggling with this morning, well, that's also spiritual. God is trying to teach you things through your body about him and trust in him and leaning into him. That job that you want, it's not just about writing a really great resume and putting something on a physical piece of paper that wins you the job. It's a spiritual exercise of learning to trust. The relationship that you're in that's in the middle of conflict, that's not just an emotional thing or a psychological thing. There's a spiritual element because the enemy wants to come in and disrupt all of your life. And God is teaching you through all of these experiences to lean into him and trust in him that he can accomplish victory and honor and glorify himself in every circumstance of your life. So if we read this story, one of the things that we notice is, in fact, uh, the people's efforts don't really accomplish all that much. Read with me again, verse 3. It says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Right. So what they did for six days is they got up in the morning, they took a lap. Got up the next morning, they took a lap. Got up the next morning, they took another lap. And it's not like as they took each lap that the walls kind of gradually crumbled a little bit. Right. March harder. Right. The walls were not slowly, progressively crumbling. In fact, there was nothing that the Israelites could actually do to knock down these walls. Let me uh, illustrate this for you visually. This is uh, a drawing of what the city would have looked like. And what they discovered uh, in uh, the archaeological studies is there, there are actually two walls. There was a lower wall and then an upper wall encircling the entire city. And since this was a gateway city leading up into Canaan, this was one of the most uh, fortified cities and one of the most uh, well-armed. There were warriors inside the city. This was a, a really difficult city to get into. Illustrate a little bit further. So what it would have looked like is this. On the lower side, a woman named Kathleen Kenyon, an archaeologist, dug a trench through the wall. So she went up through this area. And you'll notice that first wall was about 23 feet high. The top of the second wall from the bottom where the Israelites would have been standing was about 46 feet High, And in between, there would have been periodically houses built. So this is what Israel has to go through. And they don't have catapults, and they don't have battering rams. They don't have anything. All that they do is they walk around the city. First day, one mile. Second day, they do a mile. Third day, they do a mile. And I just wonder how difficult it was for them to just say nothing, right? Because God said, don't say anything. Because after like day three or four, I can just imagine the people in Jericho 
are looking down and they're yelling at him and they're probably throwing stuff at him and picking up rocks and God said, don't say anything, don't talk back. And remember, they're raised by a generation of parents who whined and complained about everything, right? So they don't say anything, just walk. And then the last day, God says, I want you to go seven times. He had them gear up for war and then he wore them out. Right? I mean, what's, what, what's the most productive thing for an army to do the day of attack? Sleep well, eat well, rest. Instead, God makes them walk in the heat seven miles because they needed to learn a lesson. It was only his power that could knock down this wall. You know, that's crushing, isn't it? But that's exactly where we need to be. It's exactly where we don't want to be. When we're that deeply humbled and we realize realize only God's power can accomplish this victory. But you know, God actually calls his people frequently to do things that just don't make sense logically. Just to humble us so we'll listen and learn and follow. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet, was told that he needed to um, walk around naked for two years. I don't know if you remember that story, Isaiah chapter 20, uh, and proclaimed judgment on uh, the nation of Egypt. And, you know, I know that's not supposed to be a funny story, but when I read it, I, was, I, just, I just imagine doing that, right? I just imagine coming into the office for two years, naked, and I think, you know, I'd, I'd probably get fired. I mean, a day or two and you're out, man. But, you know, Isaiah, two years, he walks around naked, because God says, there's a visual aid I'm trying to offer here. I, I don't know, right? And then Ezekiel, he has to make a little model of a city, right? And then uh, for, for a year, he's told by God, I want you just to lay down next to your little toy model of a city and cast siege to it, right? Just break it up, right? So I just, again, I imagine that my staff comes in and I've built a little Lego model in my office, right? And I'm, you know, and I'm just, I'm just kind of crushing it, <laughs> Right? Which I think, okay, they wouldn't fire me, but like leave of absence. Right? You, you got you to gotta rest, man. You're... What's the point? Well, God is breaking them down to trust in him. Imagine if you went into the grocery store and God whispered in your ear. He said, that's the shortest line. That's the fastest line. Go in that line. And you're like, yes, right? I'm going to win so you got in that line, and as soon as you got up to unload your stuff, you began unloading. God says, put everything back in your cart and go into that line. Okay, right? <laughs> you know, unload everything, and you get all the way to the checkout line, and you unload everything, and you put it on the belt, and God says, no, unload it, load it back in your cart and go back to this line. You know, what in the world? Israel's marching around the city. They're saying nothing, and they have to be wondering, what in the world, how will God do this? This is so humbling. And looking up at that wall, realizing they have no strength, no power to knock it down, but God says, I'll do it for you. Right? First principle of spiritual conquest is complete, utter, abject reliance and trust in God's power to do what God wants to do in your life and through your life. Second principle, spiritual conquest requires unceasing respect. I want you to turn to uh, chapter 7 of Joshua. The people did uh, walk around the wall. The wall fell down uh, miraculously and uh, fell down flat and made a ramp for them just to walk up into the city and conquer. 
And so this is really a high point in Israel's experience. First city down, boom, they're, they're, on, they're on a roll. You'd think things can't get any better from here, right? Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So what happened here? What's the ban and, and why did God put it on there? The word in Hebrew is cherem, not harem, which is something totally different. It's cherem. It means uh, set apart for destruction or set apart uh, unto the Lord. So everything in the city, all the people, all the livestock, all the gold, all the silver, all the tapestry, absolutely everything God said, that's a debt to me. Right? That's a debt to me. And all of that belongs to me. What's interesting is uh, earlier when the Israelites had been going through the wilderness, they had fought and they had captured and taken the spoils of war. God said, take all of that. Take the camels, take the donkeys. Right? And later, God would say, take the camels, take the donkeys, take all the silver, take the gold, take, the, take everything. In fact, the next battle they fight, they're going to get everything. But on this particular one, this first, this first battle in entering into the promised land, God said, all of this is harem. It's all mine. It all belongs to me. Don't touch any of it. And yet, we discover that... Uh, one man did take something right, that was set apart. Apparently he didn't understand what that concept meant, to be set apart. Let me, let me illustrate for you. Um, most of you know Matt Morton. Uh, Matt is our teaching pastor out at the Creekside campus. And I've known Matt since he was a student. So we've been friends a long time. And I remember one time, just a few years back, I went to Matt's house and uh, I sat down in his living room. Matt wasn't in the room at that point in time, point in time so I just sat down and waiting for Matt to come in. And uh, this chair that I sat, in, sat down into, his, his two older daughters, uh, Elizabeth and Abigail, came up to me as I'm sitting in the chair, and they said, um, that's my dad's chair. We're not allowed to sit in this chair. Which, at that point, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not moving. And I said, really? Do you think that your dad would mind me sitting in his chair? Yeah. We're, we're not allowed to sit in his chair. He, <laughs> this is great, right? So I wait until Matt. I just had to see Matt's face, right? So Matt comes in, and I'm just, I'm just sitting in his chair, smiling. And I go, hey, Matt, I understand this is your chair. Is it okay if I sit in your chair? What's he going to say, right? He works for me. Yeah, yeah. Sure, he kind of shifts around, and his daughters don't know what to do, right? Because they understood the concept. This chair only belongs to Dad. All this stuff only belongs to the Father. There will be other stuff that God says, here, take this and enjoy, but this stuff only belongs to God. So we wonder to ourselves, what in the world was Achan thinking? He had the message. What was on his mind? Verse 2, it says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the man went up, men went up, and they spied out I. They returned to Joshua, and they said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to I. Do not make all the people go, toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of I. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them as, from the gate as far as Cherubim. 
and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Destruction comes on the army. They, they run away. And we have to ask ourselves, what was Achan thinking? We, we get a, a little glimpse, chapter 7, verse 19, when he is discovered, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment. It says, And Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, implore you give glory to God, the, uh, the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua, and he said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Uh, what was he thinking? Well, uh, he was thinking kind of the same thing that all of us think when we sin. Right? Because uh, sin is essentially the result of deception. There's some lie that's spoken and we believe. And so he covets, which means he wants something more than, other than, different from what God has said yes to. God said no to that, but he says, i got to have that anyway. Because, uh, as Jaswald Sanders once said, the, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Maybe there's something really good out there that he's holding back. This is the, the, the sin in the garden, right? Eat all from all the trees, just not that one. And so what was the one that they really wanted? Just that one. That's the lie that we're all tempted to believe. And so he, he bought into that. Another lie that he probably believed, um, we, I'm assuming, because he buried it in the ground, is that God doesn't see under the surface, right? God won't know. Jeremiah 23, it says this. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a guard far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I, not, so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? But, but there are lies that we believe, and we don't trust that God is good or that he sees all things. And so Achan coveted, he took what didn't belong to him, but it wasn't just Achan's sin. Read with me again. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 7. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go spy out the land. So they went up and spied out the land. Then they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need go up. Don't make all the people toil up there, for they are few. Now what do you notice about this? They didn't ask God. They said, we got this. <laughs> we just knocked down that wall. Mommy, I just mowed that lawn. I got this. We've got this. Just send a, a small portion up so they make their own plan and they don't consult the Lord. Which is, you know, uh, one of the reasons I love the book of Joshua and it's also just so deeply convicting to me is because I, just, I see my spiritual life in this. Right? I lean in and I trust and I acknowledge I'm powerless and I see God do great things in my life. And then I turn around and say, I got this. In fact, uh, my son and I were literally having this conversation last night. He said, Dad, why do I do that? So I don't know I do the same thing. In fact, just days later, right? So what's going to happen is they have this great victory in Jericho. They make their own plan. They go up to the city of Ai. They're defeated. They come back. God gives them a new plan. They go up. They defeat the city of Ai. Then a few days later, 
some men come to them and they're all in tattered clothes, right? And their, their bread is stale. And they say, we've come from a very far off land and uh, we want to make peace with you because we hear how great your God is and how powerful your army is. Will you make, a, will you make peace with us? And notice what happens here. This is chapter 9, verse 14. It says, uh, read verse 13. It says, These wineskins which we filled, they were new, and behold, they're torn. These clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. But what they didn't know, because they didn't ask, is that they were actually nearby neighbors. They had just gotten old clothes and let their bread dry and showed up and lied. And Israel would have known that they'd lied. And, you know, the congregation would have known that Achan had stolen something if they'd stopped and asked, Lord, what should we do? Should we go up? And the result was that 36 men died in the process. Now turn back to chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord says, Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put among them, put these things among their own things. Right? The whole, the whole congregation is responsible. So Achan's sin affects all of them, but all of them also sin because the congregation had once again become presumptuous. So what's one of the absolute keys to spiritual conquest? Man, it is just eternal vigilance. Why should you have a quiet time? Because it's on your to-do list. Check, God's pleased with me now because I, I read another chapter on version and I prayed 10 minutes. Boom, 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 every day. No, it's because you need to be reminded and I need to be reminded every single day that we're not in charge of our life and that we don't have the strength to accomplish God's will in our life. And so every single day we get on our knees before him every morning and probably throughout the day and every evening to be reminded that all of life is spiritual and only God can do his work through us. And that's what we need, right? That's why we establish those patterns, not because it makes God happier with us, but because we so deeply need to be dependent upon the Lord. Okay, that's the second principle. Third principle is this. Spiritual conquest requires vigorous repentance. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan and not battle at all, right? Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut, us off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name, O oh Lord? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Probably not the response uh, that maybe we were expecting, but God says, get up. Stop whining, figure out what's going on, solve the problem so you, that you can move on, right? Address the situation and don't blame me for this failure. Verse 10, verse 11, he says, Israel has sinned, they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. They've even taken some of the things which are under the ban, they have, ban, they have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, they turned their backs before their enemies, for they had become a curse. 
I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come by, come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who has, ta- who has taken the things which are under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now that's a shocking little moment there in Scripture, is it not? Um, I had a friend of mine say to me one time, uh, God and Israel seem really mean in this story. There's something here about the character of God that, that maybe doesn't fit uh, easily and neatly into our, our understanding of the nature of God. So, so what's actually going on here? Because uh, what we see is God is, is uh, going to destroy the, the city. He's destroyed the city of Jericho. He's also uh, about to destroy a family, it would seem. So what's happening here? Well, remember last week I referenced Genesis 15, verse 16. I wanted to read that to you uh, this week. It says this. Uh, Then in the fourth generation, they, that is Israel, will return here, that is Canaan, the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That is, when Israel went down to Egypt, God told them, uh, you're going to go down. He told Abraham, he said, your your people will go down. They're going to be down there four generations, about 400 years. And the reason for that is because I'm going to give the Amorites an opportunity to repent. So I'm going to keep you out of the land. And they will either repent or they will store up judgment for themselves. So when Israel came into the land, they were actually commanded uh, not necessarily to destroy all the people. Literally, God said, drive them out. But as you drive them out, any and all who want to join and worship the Lord can worship the Lord. Look at Joshua chapter 8 and verse 33. Joshua 8, verse 33, it says, All Israel with their elders and officers, their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. In other words, you know, we highlighted Rahab last week as one that we know of, but apparently there were, there were many. As Israel came through, they realized, no, this is, this is the one true God. But there are others who said, no, we're going to continue our practice of our immoral worship of the Baals and sacrificing to the sun and the moon and the stars and the lightning and the storms and the thunder. And so a lot of them didn't turn, but you know what? Some did. And they followed Israel, Rahab being this beautiful, shining example. And historical uh, trivia, a little nugget for you. When they excavated the city of Jericho, there was only one section of the wall that didn't fall down on the north side. Because that's where Rahab lived. Because God wanted to rescue anyone and everyone who would turn to him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But at some point in time, every person has to make a choice. Will they believe in the Lord as the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son whom he has sent? 
Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And yes, that's a hard word. And it's not a popular word, particularly in our culture today, because Jesus is exclusive. He says, there is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. If I tell you there, there is, then I'm lying to you and I'm deceiving you. I'm not helping you. Jesus is the only way. And so he offers himself. He says, whosoever will may come. Drink of the water of life freely, but drink. Drink, make a choice. And I want to encourage you this morning. uh, Maybe you've heard a lot about Jesus your entire life. Maybe you grew up in this culture where you're surrounded by uh, the Bible belt and exposure to truth. But maybe you never made this decision for yourself. That Jesus is your Savior. That he's the one, just Jesus, who's taken away not just the sins of the world, but your sins. And this morning, the most important thing that you could do would be simply say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that Jesus is my Savior, and I worship him alone. See, every single person in that land had that opportunity as Israel came through to turn and to repent, but they didn't. The second thing, though, that the Lord does is he takes this whole family, and the whole family is wiped out. We go, whoa, that seems a little bit extreme. Well, one of the things we have to remember is that uh, God is even quicker oftentimes in judging his own people, right? The Amorites got 400 years. But Achan and his family, they only got one night. So this is not a statement about their eternal life. This is a statement about God's discipline on a believing family. And apparently the whole family knew what had been done because he buried the treasure where? In the center of the tent and then pulled a carpet over it. So the whole family knew. And the whole family had an opportunity to repent all that day, right? The previous day, Joshua said, The Lord has just told me, here's what's going to happen. All the families are going to come forward and the tribes are going to come forward and he's laying all this out. And in that moment, they could have said, it's us. right? And then the next morning, it happens. And the tribes come forward and the families come forward and they're coming forward. When does Achan finally repent? When Achan is standing alone and everyone else is gone. And then God purifies his people. Because when when we as the children sin, we do things that dishonor the reputation of God. And we have to recognize that God is absolutely gracious and kind. He gives us this gift of life that lasts forever freely, but he's also holy and just. And for people in the world to know what God is really like, we have to behave similarly. So, Achan waits till the very last minute to confess. When do you confess? And when God's spirit begins speaking words of conviction, you just kind of move to the back of the crowd and you wait. Maybe a mistake will happen and somebody else will get taken. Or maybe I can put the sin under the carpet in my living room and God will not see. And what Joshua does is, is he's eager, right? He's eager to bring holiness and purity. In fact, they, they rush to Achan's tent. They say, we've got to get rid of this stuff. Do you, do you rush when the Spirit convicts you? So the, the point of, of what we're talking about this morning is, is experiencing this power of spiritual conquest in our lives, really experiencing the power of God to move in dramatic ways in our life. And one of the reasons we don't often experience that is because we've got these little sins that we keep hidden. Right? The, the foxes in the vineyard, Solomon talks about. And we hear the voice of the Lord and we just try to, let me just tune it out, let me tune it out. But genuine repentance that really restores the power of God in our lives, we we rush to repentance. Mm -hmm. 
to read to you uh, my favorite passage on repentance from Joel chapter 2. It says this. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, uh, bride and groom, cancel the honeymoon. Whoa, what's one event that you don't cancel? You don't cancel, this is cancel the honeymoon, cancel it. Because nothing is more important than being pure and having your conscience clean before the Lord. Remember, God loves you freely. He loves you eternally. You belong to him forever if you're his child. But also because you're his child, God disciplines his children. Why? Because he hates sin and he loves us. Right? He hates sin, but he also loves us. And he knows if we keep this inside of us and we let it stir and we let it fester and we let it go unconfessed, it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy our relationships and it's going to destroy our witnesses. So in his mercy and kindness, he says, let me point out some sin. And one of the ways you know it's the voice of the Spirit speaking and not Satan is Satan comes and he says, you stink. You're a terrible person. You're unworthy. There's nothing you can do for the Lord, right? And it's just this blanket sense of guilt and shame. When the Spirit comes, he doesn't do that. He says, you, you lied to your roommate. You, you ate your roommate's food. Give the food back. Pay for you, Right? That's how the Spirit comes. Zing! Right there. You spoke unkindly to your wife. When you said that, that was not kind. It was not merciful. You need to ask forgiveness from me and from her. Just bam! Just like that, right? So... The one thing you should not do is sit here and say, oh, I'm a terrible, rotten, miserable worm of a person and God cannot use me. The fact is you are a redeemed sinner that in the power of God, he can do amazing and incredible things through you and in your life. And, and man, you need to get busy. And one of the things you probably need to do is get the decks cleared, right? Cleared off so you can experience God's power. And that comes when he specifically convicts and he says, deal with that. So as we close, I want to give you a few specific points of application. I'm going to give you three. First is this. Repent now. If God is speaking something specific into your heart and mind, uh, as we close, you close your eyes and say, Lord, please forgive me. And if you need to address that with another person, then get that done today. And then move on. To chapter 8, God says, all right, let's go. And they gear up and they go into the next battle. Don't wallow in it because it's been forgiven. Then pay attention. You are in the midst of spiritual warfare and Satan does want to destroy your life. So when Jesus was going to his most intense moment and he was in the garden, he said, Peter, James, and John, I want you to come and I want you to pray with me. Is that what he said? No, it's only part of what he said. He said, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Pay attention to these spiritual realities that are all around you because Satan would destroy your life, but the Spirit of God would use your life to impact people around you. So watch and pray, pay attention, clean things out, and get up and move on and let the Lord use you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would listen courageously to the voice of your Spirit. And when your Spirit speaks conviction, that we would deal with it quickly. We wouldn't excuse it. We wouldn't hide it. We wouldn't shift the blame to you or others, but we would just we would own it, and we would know just the, the sweetness of, of forgiveness and reconciliation with you. I thank you, Father, that uh, even when we do sin and we do fail, because we're your children, we're safe and we're secure, 
and we can, we can trust in you. So we come to you from a place of confidence and security in your love. Father, I pray that you would continue to use this church in a powerful way. I pray uh, during this next week even that you'd give us opportunities to speak words of life about Jesus to others around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.